If you are visiting with us, my name is Joseph, I'm the pastor here, it's lovely to have you along. Um, I've disconnected the iPad from the Wi-Fi, which is cool. And fun fact, we had 35 notifications come up on the screen while I was preaching in the last, mes- in the last service, so that was exciting. So it's my daughter's friends, were the- this is her iPad, so they were messaging. 35 of them when you're trying to preach, so they go, none for this one, so... Like I said, the, the, nine, the 11 o'clock, it's the peace service. It's the peace one. The, the 9 o'clock's the grace service, but this is the peace one. Grace and peace. Hey, warm welcome to you this morning. If, you, if it's your first time along, it can be tricky coming into a new space. You feel like the odd one out, but um, you're not. You're lovely and uh, lovely to have you along. Thanks for braving the wardrobe and coming along to St. Luke's. Nice to have you here this morning. Uh, we are in Advent. Advent is the moment before the moment. Uh, it's not the moment. Christmas is the moment. Advent's the moment before the moment. It's the countdown. Uh, that's why we just sing one carol. Uh, next week we'll sing two because we're a little closer to the moment. And then the week after we'll sing three and then we'll sing four and then we'll only sing carols. But you kind of just got to ease into it. It's the moment before the moment. Now, it's a season of waiting. Advent's a season of waiting and excitement and anticipation. Uh, counting down to Christmas. And... Uh, for kids, often the counting down is to whatever is waiting for them under the tree and looking forward to unwrap that and get stuck into that and explore whatever that great hope will be or disappointment. It depends. Kids can be tricky. Uh, for adults, often the waiting that you're doing, the counting down that you're doing is, I don't really care what's under the tree. I just need a break. I just need to put my feet up. I just need to stop. I just need to sign off, whatever it is that's happening. I just need to just be able to chill for a while. That, that, that's often the counting down, the waiting that we're doing. And fair enough, it's understandable. But uh, as part of the Christian calendar, Advent isn't just counting down to trinkets and time off. Uh, Advent is this, 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 its own time. Its own time of counting down to the coming of Christ at Christmas. The celebration of Christ's arrival, Christ's Advent. Christ turning up in our world. So it's one of preparing our hearts and reimagining things and reconsidering things. Uh, it's a chance to revisit deeper hopes and longings or desires that perhaps we uh, carry in our lives. Maybe even deeper disorientations that we carry within us. It's a chance to revisit those and let those kind of come to the surface. Ask ourselves some questions. Do we suppose that the right gift under the tree is going to satisfy the deeper longings that we carry in life? Do we suppose that a holiday, some time off, that's going to be the thing that, ah, life's a mess, but man, once I get that holiday, once I get to the beach, then everything's going to be kind of, it'll be, all be perfect after that. Do we, do we really think that? Do we really think a, a holiday's going to be the thing that's, you know, a holiday's a good thing, but do we really think a holiday's the thing that's going to make all the difference? Or are we open to the possibility that there's a mystery to life, and that true north is found not in certain things, or not in a holiday, but in this person that we name as Jesus? chance to revisit those kinds of things, our hopes and fears for all the years, and to recognize maybe for the first time that they are met in Christ. That's one of the songs that we sing. So uh, as we do that, we're going to be journeying through C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. We're going to be picking some themes out of, out of that as we, as we journey along. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, it's about four kids, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And they, uh, they go through this wardrobe and they discover this magical world of Narnia where there's talking animals and magic. And it's always winter but near the Christmas. And uh, they fight battles and they get magic gifts. and all. It's a, it's a great story. It's a fantastic story. And we're going to dip into some themes in that story as we count down to Christmas. Um, and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, Lucy, one of the children, 
She puts it like this when she sees the lamp on the other side of the wardrobe. Hello. Uh, she says, it will not go out of my mind that if we pass this, uh, that if we pass this post in Lantern, we shall find strange adventures. And uh, my hope is that these next four Sundays of Advent are kind of a strange adventure for us. Not, not a weird adventure, but this strange magical venture as we kind of reconsider the deeper things in our lives, our hopes and fears for all the years. Uh, in many ways, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale type adventure with good and evil and right and wrong and magic and kings and queens and princesses and all, all, all sorts of things like that. Uh, but what's important to note is that throughout the imagery of the, of the story, C.S. Lewis kind of layers in ideas about what it is to have a Christian faith, what it is to trust Christ, what it is to know the kingdom of God. There's all sorts of kind of little layers embedded within the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. I mean, the, the most obvious one is that Aslan in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, this great lion is the king of Narnia. And it's a picture of Christ, who is the great king of the world. And it's, it's this kind of idea. But there's lots of them flowing throughout the uh, story. Uh, Lewis's belief was that someday you'll be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. It's one of Lewis's quotes. One day you'll be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. Of course, older and wiser, uh, the hope is that you begin to see things in the story that you never saw before. And I've had a couple of people that are adults at the 9 o'clock, they're saying, oh, we've never read the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, I haven't read it since I was like 10. But since we're doing it for heaven, I thought I'd better read it. They're like... I never knew there was so much stuff in there kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. When you read the fairy tales as an adult, you begin to discover there are a lot more than just fairy tales. So uh, we're going to dive into that this morning. Uh, I am going to read a few different passages from the, the text, which is a little unusual to what I'd normally do, but hey, we'll enjoy this. Romeo said to me this morning, he says, Dad, at the next one, don't preach, just keep reading this story. So, uh, well, I think that's kind of a compliment. I don't know. It's around that way. So here we go. Let's get into it this morning. Chapter 1, there were, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy. This is something that happened to them when they were sent away from London during the war because of the air raids. They were sent to the house of an old professor who lived in the heart of the country. And uh, they, they decide they're going to go exploring. They can't wait to get up in the morning and go exploring, except it is raining. They get it, wake up in the morning, it's raining, they can't go exploring. So they figure, well, let's explore this big old house that we're living in, this kind of mansion. So they set out, and this is where the adventure begins. It was the sort of house that you never seem to come to the end of, and it was full of unexpected places. I mean, the first few doors they tried only led into spare bedrooms, so everyone had expected that. But soon they came to a very long room full of pictures, and they found a suit of armour. And after that was a room all hung with green with a harp in one corner. And then a kind of little upstairs hall and a door that led out onto a balcony, and then a whole series of rooms that led into each other and were lined with books. Shortly after, they came upon a room that was quite empty, except for the one big wardrobe. There was nothing else in the room. Oh, there was a dead fly on the windowsill. Nothing here, said Peter, and they all trooped out again, all except for Lucy. She stayed behind because she thought it would be worthwhile trying the door of the wardrobe, even though she felt almost sure that it would be locked. To her surprise, it opened quite easily, and two mothballs dropped out. Looking inside, she saw several coats hanging up, mostly fur coats. There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of fur. She immediately stepped into the wardrobe and got in amongst the coats and rubbed her face against them, leaving the door open, of course. It would be foolish to go into a wardrobe and shut the door behind you. Soon she went further and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up. It was almost impossibly dark, and she stretched her hands out, expecting to feel the back of the wardrobe. 
But it kept on going. She took a step further in, then two or three steps, always expecting the edge of the wardrobe. But she could not feel it. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, going still further and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room. Then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs, she thought, stooping down to feel it with her hand. But instead of feeling the hard, smooth wood of the wardrobe floor, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely cold. This is very bizarre, she said, and went on a step or two further. Next moment, she found she was, that her face was not rubbing against soft fur, but something hard and rough and prickly. Why, it's, it's like branches of a tree, explained Lucy, explained loosely. And then she saw that there was a light ahead, a lamp in a clearing. Something cold and soft was falling on her. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at night time with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. Lucy felt a little frightened, but also very inquisitive and excited too. How good is that? I mean, talk about an adventure as a kid. You go exploring a house. There's a boring old room with a wardrobe in it, a little bit like the foyer out there. But you think, let's have a closer look, and it opens up into this land of, well, for what she knows at the moment, a forest and snow and a lamppost, and there's all sorts of adventures just waiting for her on the other side of the lamppost. She felt frightened, but very inquisitive and excited too. And you would, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd be excited but inquisitive. Uh, you'd be frightened but inquisitive and excited all at the same time. Operation Pied Piper began on the 1st of September 1939. Uh, officially, it relocated 3.5 million people, especially children, out of English cities and into the countryside during the German Luftwaffe's bombing of the cities in the UK in World War II. It was safer to have children loaded onto trains and send them out to stay with relatives that lived in the countryside. And this is the context in which C.S. Lewis begins his story, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, they were sent away from London during the war because of the air raids. So the story, right from the outset, challenges us as the reader with a specific question. Can you imagine an alternative to the brokenness that so often pervades the world that we live in? Can you imagine an alternative to the brokenness that we discover, we find, we experience so often around us? That's where the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe starts. Maybe you could say it like this. Have you the ability, the inclination, the imagination, the faith in the midst of fear, worry, stress, anxiety, the uncertainty of our lives? Or for Susan, Peter, Edmund, Lucy, the fear, worry, anxiety, uncertainty of literally a war context. Family members going off to fight, bombs falling. In the midst of that, can you imagine that there are other possibilities? Are we open to the idea that there are alternative ways of being in the world? Alternative ways of organising things. Alternative ways of experiencing life. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's the, it, Narnia is the magical alternative to this World War II kind of context that is unfolding. Uh, for us in Advent, the kingdom of God is this alternative to the brokenness of the world that we so often experience. The kingdom of God, a different way of ordering our lives under a different king. A way that invites human flourishing for all as we learn to kind of embrace the Sermon on the Mount, live the way of Christ in the world. An alternative way. In Narnia, the alternative is talking animals and magical creatures and excitement and adventure and all sorts of things like that. For us, the alternative that we count down to at Christmas time is 
hope and peace and joy and love. These alternatives that we, we consider, we imagine, we look to in Christ. Flourishing under, not Aslan as the king of Narnia, but Jesus as the true king of our lives in this world. The second question Lewis asks of his readers right from the outset of the adventure is to do with the ordinary and the extraordinary. Could it be that an extraordinary alternative is to be found on the other side of what appears to be very ordinary? In the line of which in the wardrobe, it's the ordinariness of a, a, a long-forgotten room, really. There's a, there's a dead fly on the mantelpiece. The ordinariness of a wardrobe that's just sitting in the corner of the room. Mothballs rolling around on the ground when Lucy opens up the door. Nothing to see here, Peter says. Move along, move along. Nothing to see here. But Lucy has a closer look. Beneath the surface... Beyond the coats hanging on the hangers, something magical is unfolding. A whole new world. Perhaps you could say it like this. If you're willing to take a closer look, you discover that some things are bigger on the inside than they appear on the outside. Which is what we have for the little girl standing there watching that wardrobe before people were coming in at the nine o'clock service. Couldn't work out how, mum, how are they all fitting in the wardrobe? It's bigger on the inside than it appears from the outside. Lucy felt frightened but also inquisitive and excited too. And you can imagine that little girl watching the wardrobe being excited but inquisitive and a little kind of frightened all at the same time. Lucy says, it will not go out of my mind that if we pass this post and lantern we shall find strange adventures. For us in Advent we're counting down to Christmas. A baby born in a shed, a lean-to alongside goats and Chickens and what have you, laid in a manger. Uh, a manger is a feeding trough, laid in a trough for animals. Nothing spectacular, really just kind of a, in one sense you'd just say it's really kind of a third world kind of birth, really. Nothing, nothing spectacular there. I mean, no, no birthing suite with specialised staff, uh, no sparkle for a water birth, first century water birth in the manger. Fill up the trough with enough water, there's not going to be enough room, this isn't going to work. Cattle are lowing. I don't know if you've ever thought about that line, the cattle are lowing. Uh, what that actually means is the cows are mooing. It's just the, po- it's just the way the poet says it. I'd say, you know, those cows, they were mooing. He goes, oh, no, no, the cattle are lowing. It's like, it's just mooing. It's just ordinary. It's very ordinary. Nothing to see here. Move along. Move along. Move along. But during Advent, we're invited to pause, to still ourselves, to slow down, even amongst the hustle and bustle of life, the busyness of life, and to take a closer look. To look beneath the surface, to look beyond the obvious, to be inquisitive, to listen, for example, to the announcement that the angels declare to the shepherds. I'm reading the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. How very ordinary. Baby in a manger. When the Caesar had a new baby and a new king was born, it would be presented to the people in a golden crib. That's the contrast of the manger. The Caesars, the, the children would be presented in this golden crib because this is this new king that's been born. Jesus comes lowly in a manger. Take a closer look, look a little deeper. We're invited to confess, as we do in song, a thrill of hope. 
a weary world rejoicing for on yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. Something extraordinary happening in the midst of what looks very ordinary. In the final battle, that's the, the seventh book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, there's a stable. And uh, it's a little bit like the wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. In the last battle, there's this stable, but they look at it from the outside. But when they go into the stable, they, they discover there's whole armies ready to come out kind of thing. They're like, whoa, that stable's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Uh, same as the, the wardrobe. And Tyrion, one of the characters, smiles to himself and says, it seems then that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. Advent's an invitation to look beyond the ordinary to see the extraordinary. Once in our world, a stable had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. Advent is thus an invitation to take a second look. To look with the eyes of our heart rather than just the eyes of our head. To imagine as we count down to Christmas and to realize that something bigger than this whole world is unfolding at Christmas. Something bigger on the inside than it appears from the outside. Reimagining things like that or imagining things like that, though sometimes that can be difficult. To imagine the extraordinary in the ordinary, that can, that can be tricky at times. Sometimes it's easier, perhaps you could say, just to, just to go low bar when it comes to Christmas. When it comes to the magic of Christmas. More convenient at times. Just the kind of, oh, just let it be. It doesn't have to be a something. Just let it be a thing. Christmas doesn't have to be a something. It could just be a thing. And when, when, we, when we let it just be a thing, well, it doesn't really ask anything of us. Instead, we get to ask of Christmas whatever we like. This is what I want under the tree. This is how long a holiday I want. This is what I want the black caps to do on the Boxing Day test. Bang, bang, bang. Better happen kind of thing. Loba, we ask of Christmas what we'd like rather than have Christmas ask something of us. But the truth is Christmas is not just a thing, it's a something. We're invited to look a little deeper, even though that can be hard to imagine at times. Lucy travels back from Narnia, back through the wardrobe and uh, tells her family about it. They don't really believe Edmund. In, uh, yeah, Edmund ends up going through as well and he comes back and he meets Lucy and they've both been through, but Susan and Peter haven't. And Edmund won't tell the truth. Edmund just says, oh, we're playing games and Lucy's trying to explain, no, it really happened. And Peter and Susan, the, the older siblings, they're, they're finding it hard to imagine that there really could be a world on the other side of the wardrobe. So Peter and Susan decided to go and tell the whole thing to the professor. He'll write to Father. If he thinks there's something wrong with Lou, uh, he'll, he'll contact us. It's getting beyond us. They went to speak to the professor. He sat listening to them, with the tips of his fingers pressed together and never interrupting till they had finished the whole story. After that, he said nothing for quite a long time. Then he cleared his throat and said the last thing either of them expected. How do you know, he asked, that your sister's story is not true? Oh, but, but, began Susan and then stopped. Anyone could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, but Edmund said they had only been pretending. Edmund's been telling some lies. That's the point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration, for instance. And if you'll excuse me for asking this question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the most reliable? 
I mean, which, which one of them is the more truthful? That's just the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up till now, I'd have said Lucy every single time. And what do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. But this couldn't be true, all of this about a wood and a lamp. There's more than I, uh, that is more than I know, said the professor. But a charge of lying against someone to whom you have always found to be truthful is a very serious thing. A very serious thing indeed. We, well, we were afraid it might not even be lying said Susan. We, we thought there might be something wrong with Lucy. Madness, you mean, said the professor quite coolly. Oh, you can make your minds up about that easily enough. One only has to look at her and talk to her to see that she is not mad. But, uh, but then, said Susan, and stopped. She had never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor and didn't know what to think. Logic, said the professor to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There is only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, she is mad, or she's telling you the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she's not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Susan looked at him very hard and was quite sure from the expression on his face that he was not making fun of them. But, but how could it be true, sir, said Peter. Why, why do you say that, said the professor. Well, for one thing, said Peter, if it was true, why doesn't everyone find this country every time they go into the wardrobe? I mean, there was nothing there when we looked, and even Lucy didn't pretend there was. What's that got to do with it, said the professor. Well, sir, if things are real, they're, they're there all of the time, said Peter. Are they, said the professor. And Peter didn't really know quite what to say. But there was no time, said Susan. Lucy had no time to have gone anywhere, even if there were such a place. She came running after us the very moment we were out of the room. It was less than a minute. And she pretended that she was away for hours. That is, a, that is the very thing that makes her story likely to be true, said the professor. If there really is a door in a house that leads to some other world, and I should warn you that this house is a very strange place. If I say, if she'd gone to another world, I should not at all be surprised that that other world had a separate time to ours. So that however long you stay there, it would only take up a moment of our time. And then, on the other hand, I don't think many girls of her age would invent that idea for themselves. If she had been pretending, she would have hidden for a reasonable amount of time before coming out and telling her story. But do you really mean, sir, said Peter, that there could be other worlds all over the place, just around the corner like that? Nothing is more probable, said the professor, taking off his spectacles and beginning to polish them while he muttered to himself, I do wonder what they teach them at schools these days. Nothing is more probable, says the professor. Nothing more probable, what's he saying? Nothing more probable, probable than the reality that there's more to this life than meets the eye. Nothing more probable, says the professor, that there's more to this life than meets the eye. Nothing more probable than that, the fact that there's a great mystery behind this mystery of life. With that great mystery being something that we ultimately name in Christ. Peter to the professor in the midst of his uncertainty. Well, sir, if things are real, they're there all the time. Are they? said the professor. Peter didn't know quite what to say. At the end of the day, just because something real is real doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to see. I had a, my five-year-old niece was at my house, and so I drew a picture of Japan. Yes, he did. Just drew a picture of Japan. I said, here's your picture of Japan. Is there anything you want me to, to add to it? She goes, yes, could you add the wind? It's like... <laughs> Are you serious? Like she, she wasn't thinking it through like we're thinking it through. It was like, you, I can't, you can't draw the wind. 
like to this five-year-old, oh, okay, we'll try and draw the wind. Not everything that is real is necessarily easy to see. But if there is a time when it's easier to see some of these things, easier to imagine these possibilities that kind of sometimes feel beyond the realm of possibility, Advent's the time to see it. Christmas is the time to see it. Christmas is this time when alternative options, better ways of being in the world, possibilities hard to imagine any other time of the world, uh, any other time of the year, seem to kind of bubble up at Christmas time. Extraordinary ways. The extraordinary and very ordinary things. You walk into shops and you hear music playing. It's the most marvelous time. Why? Why, why is that? Why are they playing that song? That's a secular song. It's not one of the Christian carols that we sing. It's the most marvelous time of the year. Kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most marvelous time of the time of the year. In wars, troops have stopped fighting at Christmas time, killing each other on Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, let's stop, play soccer, trade cigarettes. Boxing Day, let's go back to killing each other. Well, how does that? Why, why does that happen? How is it that in the midst of World War II, people it, that, it stopped fighting? And families, relatives that don't talk to each other, they talk to each other at Christmas. Why is, it, why is it at Christmas you talk to people that you don't normally talk to? Christmas, tight-fisted bosses shout their staff a ham. Give nothing all year. Chris, have a ham. There's a ham for each of you. Take that home. <laughs> Where did that come from? Why are you doing that? Christmas time. Parking wardens. Instead of giving tickets, they say, oh, get out of here. It's Christmas time. I don't know if that's true. I made that one up. <laughs> You'd like to think it's true. Because you hear people asking for that. You're getting a ticket. Oh, you're giving me a ticket. It's Christmas time. What are you doing? Give me a ticket. Police pull someone over. Come on, officer. It's Christmas time. Why do we say that? Why do people say that? No one ever says to the police officer, oh, come, Mr. Officer, it's the middle of winter. Let us off. They go, it's Christmas. Give us a break. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. Even a secular world recognizes this. There's something magical about Christmas. But why is there something magical about Christmas? Why in this postmodern, rationalist, kind of secular world that we live in, do we still kind of recognize there's some magic Christmas. Where does the Christmas spirit come from? Well, it doesn't come from the ongoing commercialization of Christmas. Retailers and corporate businesses over the years, they haven't, they haven't given birth to the Christmas spirit with their laybys and deferred payments and Boxing Day sales. It doesn't come from there. It doesn't come from secular world's attempt to, let's not say Merry Christmas, let's just say Happy Holidays. That, that's not what's kind of birthed alive this kind of Christmas spirit. It's not thanks to Hollywood. It's not the blockbuster Christmas movies as good as what they are that have kind of created this Christmas spirit. And there's some good Christmas movies. Die Hard, Home Alone, Elf, Love Actually. That's not the origin of this, this magical time of year. It's not the Christmas movies, not the commercialization, not the secular world's attempt to kind of co-opt Christmas. It comes from the reality that since the very first Christmas, Christmas has always been a celebration of Christ. Always a celebration that in the ordinariness of this manger lay a baby that was somehow extraordinary. 
We've been celebrating that for hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years. It comes from this declaration that we sing, or the kinds of declarations we sing every Christmas. Hark now here, the angels sing, a new king born today. Man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Weary world rejoices. We sing all of these songs year after year after year. To celebrate. It's the celebration of Christ that still exists that gives birth to this, what we call Christmas spirit or Christmas magic, where we look beyond the ordinary and we imagine something extraordinary. It's birthed out of the reality that while the tinsel, the overindulgence, the hustle and bustle of Christmas might be tiresome, the good news of Jesus is ultimately never tiring, never fatigues. 2,000 years on, people are still talking about Jesus, still putting their faith in Jesus, still trying to figure Jesus out, still trying to deal with Jesus as this mystery, still find themselves captivated by, captivated by Jesus and the message of Jesus and the way of Jesus and the possibilities that we find in Jesus. 2,000 years doesn't grow tiresome. That's the magic beneath Christmas, even if you can't quite put your finger on it. It's not Christmas yet, though. It's Advent. It's the moment before the moment. It's the moment where we're counting down to the moment. Like I said, it's a chance to revisit deeper hopes and longings, desires, perhaps even deeper disorientation that we carry on life. And could it be in this season, as we consider these things, we'd come alive to the reality that the extraordinary is found in what at first glance appears to be very ordinary. A baby in a manger. Extraordinary enough to speak to the deepest parts of our lives. Something that somehow has the ability to actually anchor our lives in hope and peace and joy and love. Something that anchors our lives even as holidays come and go even as gifts are wrapped and then unwrapped and celebrated, or it's not really what I was hoping or expecting. Even as New Year's resolutions are set, some of them well and truly achieved, some of them given up by the fifth, that somehow in Christ there's an anchor point beyond the gifts, beyond the holiday, beyond the New Year's resolutions, that doesn't invite us into the same old treadmill again and again, but invites us into new possibilities. Advent's an invitation to consider whether that's actually something that can be found in Christmas. Could that be found in the Christ of Christmas? Well, it's not my job to answer that question. It's your job to carry that question over the next four weeks and to listen to your heart as we count down to Christmas. If you're with us next Sunday, we're going to carry on journeying through the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. We'll keep the wardrobe there, obviously, for the people that haven't had a chance. We'll add Turkish delight next Sunday. But whether you're with us next week or not with us next week, there's something in the air at Christmas time. When you learn to look past the busyness of the season, when you look, look to, to see beyond the stress of the season, the commercialization of the season. Uh, my favorite place to never ever go in life is shopping malls. Um, if I never darkened the bright lights and wide hallways of a shopping mall again in my life, I, I would feel like I had won rather than lost. But I do like going to shopping malls at Christmas. There's Christmas music playing, there's decorations set up. And yes, you, you see people that are stressed out. 
And yes, you see people that are maybe signing up for debt cycles that they don't need to be signing up for. But when you can look beyond those things, what you also see is a whole lot of people out and about and toing and froing and looking and hunting and searching and trying to get just the right thing for this person or that person or that loved one to somehow express love, to somehow reach out to others. I like to watch that. There's something about that is kind of magical. It's Christmas spirit. You go, well, why do we love? We love because Christ first loved us. Whether we recognize that or not, it's people kind of living into that at Christmas. So I guess my challenge to you then, over the next few weeks, is to look past the busyness of the season, the commercialization, the nature of a secular Christmas, to look beyond that and to ask yourself, why is there something different about this time of the year? Christmas magic, Christmas cheer, Christmas spirit. Why does that, why does that still exist? Why is it that Narnia seems like the thing that you should be reading in Advent? The possibility of wardrobes and Aslan, kingdoms, other ways of being in the midst of a broken world. Why does that seem possible at Christmas time? So listen to your heart. Journey with us over the next three weeks as we count down to Christmas Eve. Maybe discover, perhaps afresh, or maybe for the first time, that Christ is the answer to those questions. I'll leave that with you. Let's stand. We'll close in prayer this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming along. Lovely to be able to hang out. I'm going to close in prayer. As you go this morning, may your eyes be open to the mystery welcome, love, and wonder of Christmas that is breaking out all around you. May you be brave enough to start reading fairy tales again and wise enough to see that they are anything but make-believe. Dare to walk through the wardrobe and discover that some things are bigger on the inside than they appear on the outside. As you go this morning, may you know that God is for you and not against you, that Christmas is coming, a celebration of Christ. And that is the very best kind of adventure. May you know in this season the love of God, the life of Christ, and the peace of the Holy Spirit is your own. In Jesus' name. Amen.